we know about Tiger's mental game. It's probably better than anyone, maybe better than anyone in the history of the game. And the 2019 win at the Masters, I was kicking myself because I was like, gosh, you know, he knows this course better than anybody in the field. And I think the same thing is true this week. Welcome to Props and Hops, a podcast pursuing the best in betting and beer and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm your host, Matt Landis, and this week our focus shifts to the fairways, some British Open betting. To do just that, I'm joined by VEASAN host and the co-host of the Long Shots podcast, Brady Cannon. Brady, a golf expert, also happens to be a super contest champion, so you know we'll talk some NFL as part of this conversation as well. Brady, welcome to Props and Hops. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. Good to be on with you. Good to have you on. And just for some of the unacquainted or people who could use a refresher, you've been around in the space achieving a lot over the years, but could we kick it off with a brief elevator pitch on your background? (laughs) Yeah, sure. Um, I came to Las Vegas actually 28 years ago, and that's really when I was introduced to sports betting. Uh, you know, in a big way. I wasn't even really that familiar with betting on sports. I was always a a big time sports fan. Uh, Out of college, my first job was as a sports reporter for KSFO Radio in San Francisco. And I worked with some really legendary people in the business. In fact, uh, even got to work with John Madden for three years there in the Bay Area. And uh, eventually the station was sold for about the third time and they wiped everybody out. And I uh, found a job in sports radio in Las Vegas and did that for about a year and then decided I wanted to get into the golf business. And I worked at a few different golf courses and then I got into the tea time business. I've been doing that for probably close to 25 years, making tea times uh, for people that come to Las Vegas. And you mentioned the super contest victory that's really what got me back on the map in the sports betting circles and radio and, you know, broadcasting and that type of thing. Uh, so did a radio show following that victory for about six years. And about that time was when VEASAN rolled around about uh, five years ago and uh, started working for them. So, so that's kind of the long and short of the Brady Cannon timeline for you. We'll dig into plenty of those stops along the way throughout this course of the conversation And let's cut to the chase with the Open teeing off shortly, talking some golf. I do want to preface that you did a nice segment on VEASAN's My Guys in the Desert yesterday as we record this conversation. The afternoon, Pacific time of Tuesday, July 12th. I also know that by the time this episode's out, your episode for the Open as part of the Long Shots podcast will be available. So I'll look to advance versus repeat some of the talking points as much as possible But in general, to lay a foundation, how would you describe your overall betting approach in golf? Well, you know, it it started when I uh, got into the golf business in Las Vegas, Matt. Uh, This was probably back in about 1999. Uh, I had some friends who ran a fantasy golf deal, if you will, where you had to pick. There was about 40 PGA Tour tournaments, and it included all the majors and what have you. Um, 
we started with the uh, Tournament of Champions at Kapalua in January and then finished up with probably the Tour Championship was about the last event sometime in September back then or so. But it was about 40 events and you had to pick a golfer for each event prior to the year starting. Not a lot, not like uh, a lot of the contests these days where it's a one and done and you just pick a guy every week. We had to fill out the entire card before the season kicked off. So you really had to do a lot of research about who was good at certain courses, who was going to typically show up at a tournament year in and year out. Um, and that really got me in tune with horses for courses and guys that, you know, flourish at certain golf courses and certain types of players that do well at certain types of courses. So that was the beginning of my golf handicapping career. I actually won that, uh, that contest or what have you a couple times. And then, you know, fast forward, maybe a few years later, I kind of started betting on the major championships like everybody, you know, the casual better does. And I remember I hit Payne Stewart to win the U.S. Open, which I think was 1999 or so at Pinehurst. Um, and then again, it was around the time of the super contest where I got more heavily into betting golf and betting the handy, uh, the head to head matchups and top 10 and top 20 finishes and that type of thing. So my roots are probably based in, in a horses for courses type of mindset. Uh, but nowadays, you know, you have so many metrics available to you. And so, you know, it's kind of like football too. There, there's situational and there's, there's, you know, what you feel in your gut and the eye test and everything. And then there's all the numbers that, you know, and so I try and incorporate all of that a little bit uh, for my golf handicapping. And, you know, hopefully uh, I continue to have success at it. Like anything, there are good years and bad years, but for the most part, it's been good years. I love that you touched on horses for courses and being mindful of how the metrics play into that. I'd love to dig into that in just a moment, but Zooming out a bit, part of the reason I'm doing this show, you know, probably you can count on less than one hand the number of golf-focused episodes I'll do a year. <laughs> when we have really intriguing majors like this, it's really good even for the casual fan to pay more attention, maybe get more skin in the game from a betting standpoint. And for somebody in your shoes, I'd imagine there's a bit of a distinction when we look at majors versus non-majors and golf probably expanded betting menus, more options to, you know, get down on some edges, a lot of public money influencing things perhaps like in the in the nfl we see with the super bowl every year when it comes to a major like the open as opposed to any other non-major tournament what would you say are some of the biggest opportunities from a betting standpoint for a weekend like this that's a good question um you know i i don't know as far as opportunities but maybe there is a little bit more of a historic landscape uh, you know, especially if you look at the Masters, because they play the same course every year. So you can really draw on a lot of course history. And actually, the Masters, more so than any other golf tournament that is played, has the most repeated history. So, you know, guys that guys that typically play well at the Masters almost always play well at the Masters. So it, it can be very predictive that way. And I think the Open Championship is similar. Uh, both the Open Championship and the Masters require experience. You don't see a lot of debutantes win, you know, their first try taking on the British Open. Now, Colin Morikawa last year was an outlier, certainly in his very first British Open. He's been an outlier really throughout his career. Won his uh, PGA Tour or PGA Championship, which I think was his very first win as a professional. So Morikawa ha has really bucked the trend. But 
the British Open, for the most part, uh, goes to guys that have a lot of experience playing that event. And, you know, you see that where you get guys that are in their 40s that, that win this tournament. Ernie Els, Darren Clark, uh, Phil Mickelson. I don't think he was in his 40s, but he certainly wasn't a young buck uh, when he won it. Henrik Stenson, I believe, was 42 years old uh, when he won the Open Championship. Uh, so as far as, you know, betting opportunities, it kind of gives you a little bit more history to go off of than your, your regular week to week tour event where it can be very random and not that these tournaments aren't random, but maybe there's a little bit more historical data to go off of. And few courses would offer more historical data than where we're going to see the open unfold this weekend. Of course, St. Andrews, plenty of history there. And as far as the course goes, I, I know that it can be pretty forgiving relative to a lot of other courses where majors are played. And you touched on the fact earlier that golf pretty much going through an analytics revolution these days. When it comes to all the metrics available and tying them to this particular course, what would you say are some overrated and perhaps underrated metrics that a golf better would want to keep on the radar? And how might that tie into identifying some horses for this course in St. Andrews? Yeah, very good question. Uh, well, let me tell you what I did look at first. And, you know, this is this is true at Augusta National. Um, and and I, I do believe, you know, a, a lot of golf tournaments week to week, Matt, I like to look at what we call correlated courses or comp courses. And this goes back to what we were talking about, horses for courses, guys that typically play well at a certain type of golf course. And I, and I think it's very true for all walks of life. People that are uh, in a familiar place where they're comfortable. You talk about a basketball player, you know, that enjoys certain sight lines at a gym or a NASCAR driver that likes a certain track, the way it sets up. Um, you know, people, when they're in a familiar place where they have a, a certain comfort level, I think uh, tend to have more success. And so I like it when we have a real strong correlation, and we happen to have that this week with St. Andrews and Augusta National. And it's not just results-based, but it goes back to the designing of Augusta National. Bobby, uh, Bobby Jones and Alistair McKenzie studied the old course at St. Andrews quite a bit and, and took a great deal of influence from that course when they constructed Augusta National. And, and you will see very wide fairways, as you mentioned. Accuracy is not at a premium uh, big, huge greens, the shaved runoff areas, uneven lies. The courses in a lot of ways are very similar and the players will see similar shots and it requires similar skill sets. So, uh, you know, when you break down the golf course and, and what it is presenting you, I mentioned the big greens, avoiding three putting is very much a statistic that I like to look at at Augusta National when handicapping the Masters and also this particular Open Championship. I think it's seven greens on the course are double greens or shared greens between two different holes. So you have this massive putting complex where, you know, you could be playing the seventh hole and you hit the 13th green or something like that, and you've got a 100-foot putt. So there, there are going to be times when guys are faced with very long putts. So avoiding a three-putt, uh, I think is a stat that will be important this week. Strokes gained on approach is almost an, a, an important stat every week, if not the very most important. It used to be greens and regulation, but now we've whittled that down. We've refined it to how good you are at hitting greens and regulation. How close are you putting that ball to the hole? Um, I think that's important this week, but I also think it, it, you mentioned overrated. 
Strokes gained approach could be a little bit overrated this week. It's still important, but I think strokes gained off the tee might be more important this week. Now, you mentioned the wide fairways. Not many guys are going to miss the fairways this week, um, but there are a lot of pot bunkers in those fairways. So, yes, length will help, but you do have to know where to put your ball in the right spots. I do believe you have to show some precision with your position, your ball position off of the tee. Uh, so I, I think strokes gained off the tee is certainly maybe an underrated factor this week. Um, putting is probably an overrated statistic week to week because putting is the most random thing. Uh, you can have a bad putter that gets really hot for four days and you can have a great putter that goes really cold for four days. So there's a lot of variance in putting. Uh, typically, I don't put too much weight on putting. But again, like I said this week, avoiding the three putt is important. I also looked at this week putting inside of 10 feet. Uh, because like I say, with a lot of these lag putts, these long putts, um, they're going to end up with a ball that's, you know, 10, eight, six feet away from the cup. So I think you need to be good from that distance as well. Um, it's a very unique layout at St. Andrews. They've got just two par fives and two par threes and 14 par fours. We usually don't see that distribution. So with 14 par fours, obviously there's going to be an emphasis on how well players do on par fours. So you look at par four scoring, uh, strokes gained on par fours, that type of thing. So those are some of the stats that, that I weighed on heavily. And then as I alluded to earlier, I put a lot of weight on the correlated courses as well. And I mentioned Augusta National. Augusta National has correlation to Riviera Country Club in, in Los Angeles. You see a lot of the same winners at both of those courses. Um, I looked at Torrey Pines. I looked at Kapalua, where they play the opening tournament uh, right after the first of the year. And then I also looked at Whistling Straits, which has held a couple of uh, PGA championships and the most recent Ryder, uh, Ryder Cup. And then I also looked at Trinity Forest, which uh, is kind of an American Lynx-ish type design uh, down in the Texas area where they held the Byron Nelson AT&T championship in 2018 and 2019. And all of those courses, St. Andrews, Augusta, you know, Torrey Pines, Whistling Straits, they're big golf courses where the premium on accuracy is not so uh, great off of the tee. Big green putting surfaces. Uh, Whistling Straits certainly has a lynxish look to it. Um, but a lot of the same characteristics at all of those golf courses. And so I looked at guys that performed well at those courses in addition to diving into the numbers and the statistics that I mentioned. I want to get into some of the guys that do well at those courses in a little bit, but I think with a lot to unpack from your previous answer, one thought that stands out to me would be your point about golfers needing to be precise with where they can put the ball off the tee. Yes, there are wide fairways that might be forgiving on one hand, but on the other hand with pot bunkers, got to be pretty mindful with that precision. And then even with really long putts, I like how you called it, what green complexes, I believe is the term that you used, you know, putts of 100 feet plus potentially on the table for some of these guys, even on the putting green, and especially off the tee, the weather could be a factor. It's always something to keep in mind in an environment like St. Andrews. And I know a couple of days out from guys teeing off, it's pretty tough to say too specifically what we can do with the weather at this point. My understanding is that it doesn't look like a major factor right now for anybody, but we've seen that change on a dime in years past. From a weather standpoint, is there anything that's on your radar that might cause you to shift your strategy as the tournament approaches or perhaps at some point in running? 
Yeah, you know, there's not a whole lot we can do right now. But like you say, the weather certainly can turn on a dime when you have a seaside location like this and it's wide open. There's no trees on the course. You know, that's that's a link style design. Uh, we are seeing in the forecast a pretty steady 15 to 20 mile an hour breeze. And that, that's a pretty significant wind. They say that professional golfers are affected by wind at anything greater than 12 miles per hour. So, you know, we, we should be in for a golf tournament that will have some wind playing a factor. Now, it doesn't look like it's going to get crazy. I do see maybe a, a thunder shower or two in the forecast, but it looks like, like you say, the condition, the conditions are pretty benign. And there doesn't appear to be a draw bias as well. Like it's not going to necessarily blow 25 in the morning on Thursday and then calm down to less than 10 miles an hour in the afternoon where you have a certain wave of the players getting an advantage. It looks like it's going to be pretty steady uh, throughout all four of the days. So, you know, if that's the case, that's good for us as betters because we don't necessarily have to try and figure it out. And, and again, like you say, it could turn on, turn on a dime. But right now I'm expecting – consistency, I guess, in the weather. Yeah. So, so Matt, I think, you know, we, we have to, you know, employ some trust in the weatherman and because, you know, a lot of these bets we're making are, are prior to the tournament beginning. And, and typically I don't do a lot of in-game betting in golf until maybe the final round. Uh, as far as head-to-head matchups, I kind of equate it to a football game. I like to play a full tournament head-to-head matchup which, you know, is over the course of four rounds, sometimes only two rounds if one or two of the guys misses the cut. But I don't like to play single round matchups because I think that's trying that's like trying to handicap one quarter of a football game. Uh, Obviously, there are four quarters in a football game and you expect your handicap to develop or manifest over those four quarters. The same thing with golf. If I'm picking player A to beat player B, I expect player A to you know, play to his form over the course of four days. He might not play to form over just 18 holes. So uh, I don't do a lot of single round tournament matchups. And if I do get in game, usually I kind of wait until that final round, maybe at the, at the midway point after 36 holes, you kind of look and take a long shot. Um, I remember looking at Francesco Molinari after 36 holes in 2018 to win the British open. And he was 60 to one. And of course I, I recommended it on my radio show and didn't bet it. And he goes on to win, but <laughs> I think there are opportunities after 36 holes and, and after 54, but uh, until then I probably won't do much, uh, you know, with, with whatever the weather does or does not do. I imagine that was a tough pill to swallow with Molinari back in 2018. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to ask, what's your general philosophy when it comes to betting or in some cases, perhaps not betting for yourself, a pick that you would recommend on a radio show or some other platform where people might be following your advice? Well, I, I think I pretty much try and outline what I have bet and, and what I have not. Uh, you know, you and I both, we do so many shows like this and, you know, every game on the board comes across and you're like, well, do you like the uh, the Patriots or do you like the San Francisco Giants? And, you know, you, you form an opinion and you give an analysis, but, you know, I, I'll try, I will always try to be pretty clear about this is what I truly have bet myself. And certainly on our golf show, Long Shots on VEASAN, you know, I, I lay out everything that I truly have put my money where my mouth is. So, you know, I, I try to be clear about what I have done and, and be transparent about what I have not or have done. And I'd like to tie this angle in with, uh, I guess, a phrase that you used a moment ago talking about matchups in the sense of player A versus player B. 
I think one golfer that would be player A in just about everybody's mind as the tournament approaches would be Tiger Woods. And I'm hearing that he's taking action as low as 50 to 1 odds to win outright. In fact, I saw him featured as the most bet golfer at DraftKings at odds of 60 to 1 per VEASAN on Twitter right before we hopped on to record this conversation. A lot of people talking about Tiger. Some people may be recommending him. Some people may be actually betting their own money on him on various platforms. What's your point of view on this pretty fascinating outright market for Tiger Woods? Will he or won't he win this tournament? Well, you know, Tiger Woods always is fascinating in an outright market because he's going to get action almost no matter what number the bookmaker puts up. And I've seen him as high as 140 to one and as low as 40 to one. Uh, but you're right. He, he's always going to garner action. He's always going to garner attention. And, and the stage we have here, Matt, I mean, you know, it's the 150th anniversary of the oldest championship in golf. And, you know, Tiger can barely walk. And, you know, and, you know it's like, uh, what, what's the movie when Robert Redford, the natural, you know, comes out there and hits the home run? I mean, you know, it's kind of that Disney movie type setting here for Tiger Woods. He feels this is probably his last really legitimate chance to to win a major to win an open championship it's at his favorite golf course in the world so you know all the storylines are there um, I actually did bet Tiger Woods myself and in a very small long shot type of bet I got him at 85 to one I could have gotten 100 or 110 but I don't necessarily think he's going to win it I, I think the best bet you can make is Tiger Woods to make the cut and I've seen anywhere from minus 150 to plus 120. Uh, obviously, if you can get plus money, I think that's a really good bet. And I would probably bet him to as high as minus 150. I think Tiger will have a decent week. I think he's got a shot to finish top 20. If he's going to finish top 20, then he's going to have a shot to win. It, it, it's going to come down to his health, Matt. I, I don't think the game is that far off. I think, you know, in 2019, I didn't think he had any shot to win the Masters, and I thought 25 to 1 was way too low. I didn't want to be sitting on the sidelines this time if he pulls off another miracle. Uh, and I talked about it right after the Masters. I thought the game looked pretty good where, of course, he made the cut. But walking Augusta National is very, very difficult, even for a person with healthy legs. There's all kinds of elevation change and undulation. It's a very difficult golf course to walk. And, and Southern Hills for the PGA Championship is no picnic either. Now, St. Andrews, on the other hand, is very, very flat and, and should be very easy for him to walk. And I know he's been walking a lot of practice holes all week long trying to get ready for this. So, if his legs can hold up and stay strong and allow him to swing the golf club and make the shots he wants to make, I think he can, he can make some noise. And again, I think a top 20 finish is possible. Again, I bet him to win just a very small shot. Um, but, uh, and I would not advise people doing anything more than some funny money on Tiger to win the darn thing. Um, and if you are going to seriously place a wager on Tiger, I think to make the cut is the best move you can make. It's like you're reading my mind. One of my follow-ups was going to be any alternative ways to bet on Tiger <laughs> for those with sentimental value without doing too much damage to their expected value as we can often see some collateral damage on expected value in outright markets. But you answered that very clearly, Tiger, to make the cut good up to minus 150, which is currently available as we're recording this. You can probably do a bit better than that still at this stage. A couple other follow-ups as it relates to what you said about Tiger. 
first off, I believe you mentioned getting him at 85 to one. Again, just a small flyer, but if your price in pocket is 85 to one, and you mentioned having access to something like 110 to one, I know oftentimes sharp betters who come on here will preach getting the best of the number as one of the biggest things anybody can do to help their long-term ROI. And that really resonates with me. At the same time, I understand that for a lot of recreational betters, they're simply not going to sign up for 10, 20, 30 sports books and spend a bunch of time shopping lines. I think it, it behooves anybody to have a few to at least do some line shopping. But in your case, what was the justification for taking 85 to one if you knew that you could have had upwards of 100 to one? Well, I didn't know at the time. Uh, oh, 80, got it. 85. I bet 85 to one, I want to say about two weeks ago. And okay. now that we have arrived at open week, I think it was just a couple of days ago here locally, Circa uh, put him up at 140 to one. It quickly was bet down. And I believe now is trading around 100 or 110. I think he's 100 at the Westgate as well. Um, I thought 85 was a decent number. I wouldn't really go any lower than that. Uh, certainly not 40 or 50. Or I don't even think 60, but, uh, you know, 85 or higher again, just for a funny money type bet, because does he have a shot? I think he has a shot. Again, it's going to come down to the strength in his legs and if, and if he can handle that for four days. And the other thing, Matt, we, we know about Tiger's mental game. It's probably better than anyone, maybe better than anyone in the history of the game. And the 2019 win at the Masters, I was kicking myself because I was like, gosh, you know, he knows this course better than anybody in the field. And I think the same thing is true this week. Uh, maybe Rory McIlroy, there's a few, there's a couple guys in the field who call this course their favorite in the world and, and certainly know the property. But Tiger's won here twice in 2000 and 2005. He's got all the correlated courses, Augusta, Riviera, you know, Torrey Pines. He's done it everywhere that matches up with this golf course. So he certainly knows the property. He has the mental edge. If, it, if he's in contention and it comes down to a golf smarts contest, if you will, uh, he's going to be one of the favorites. So uh, again, for me, it just comes down to the health. If he can figure it out for a couple days. I imagine you'll see some stingers off the tee like we have seen him do at British Opens in the past where he's positioning his ball to, you know, stay away from the pot bunkers and he'll know the right spots where to put it in, on this golf course and, and how to do that in this weather and in this wind. And he'll know the right spots to hit on the green. He'll have an advantage over everybody in that regard. So again, if he can stay healthy for 72 holes, you never know. He just might be there and we spoke with the great golf writer and golf tipster from the UK, Ben Coley, on our Long Shots podcast earlier today. And, and he basically said, I, I wouldn't put anything past the guy. I'm not going to bet on him. But yeah, I mean, he, he's capable of almost anything as he has shown us in the past. Absolutely. And earlier in this conversation, when you referenced Torrey Pines as a similar course to St. Andrews, that definitely caught my attention because I grew up in San Diego County and I remember Tiger just dominating there. So even if the avalanche of money is coming in on him from sentimental value to the realistic notion that perhaps he does have, you know, a puncher's chance to mix my uh, sports with that metaphor, <laughs> definitely something not to write off entirely. And I'd like to round out our little mini Tiger Woods segment here. Uh, following up on something you touched on with Circa specifically and their odds on him to win, as of this morning, it was 110 to 1 on Tiger to win the Open. That was per Sportsbook Operations Manager and friend of this show, Jeffrey Benson, who posted that on Twitter. 
And that's such an intriguing stance against Tiger Woods. I mean, they're offering the no as well. Kudos to Circa for offering a two-way market. Not that I believe anybody is actually betting anything serious on the no at 140 to one. But with this two-way market, Circa has essentially taken their house edge down to less than 0.2%. We almost never see that in an outright market. Usually the house take is way, way bigger than that. And we know they're seeing one-way action on the yes with a line like this. So just to put you on the spot a little bit, what would you guess if you had to put an over-under is going to be the closing line at Circa for the yes on Tiger to win this tournament? It might end up being under 100. I, I could see 90. Uh, like I say, it was a couple weeks ago. W- way back when, just after the Masters, he reopened at 50-1 to 1 to win the Open Championship. And then a couple weeks ago, when the field for the British Open came more into form and we kind of knew who was going to be here, that's when Circa reposted him at 85. And, that, and that's when I took a little stab. Um, and then he got all the way down to like 53, I think, 63 or 53, somewhere in that neighborhood. And then he shot back up. And when, again, when we got to open week, they reposted him again at 140. So I would probably think somewhere in the neighborhood of 85 to 95 is where he'll close. Fair enough. Um, that's you know quite a bit higher than a lot of people might have anticipated just a few weeks ago. But here we are, and you can always count on a lot of interest in Tiger Woods from fans and betters alike as a major nears tee-off. I'd also like to talk to you about a group of other betters who will be getting some headlines throughout this tournament. A lot of different dynamics in play with the Live Tour and, and the PGA Tour and some friction being caused there. That could be a very long conversation for a completely different podcast. But just one question about this factor in general. What are your latest thoughts from a betting standpoint on how this live tour PGA tour friction might impact some of the golfers that people would consider putting their money on this weekend? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's, you know, kind of a a psychology lesson. Um, I actually bet a head to head matchup against Louis Oosthuizen this week. I took Hideki Matsuyama at plus 105 over Louis Oosthuizen and Louis Oosthuizen won the open championship here at St. Andrews in 2010. But of course he is now a member of the live tour and you just wonder if guys still have the hunger when they've had their pockets laced with, you know, a lot of dollars. Um, and, And you look at these guys on the live tour too. Most of them are very much in the twilight of their career. Uh, either that or they're young kids that you've never heard of that are on the European tour that, you know, are, are not really good enough to quite make it. So they, you know, they ran and took the money, too. Um, but some of the bigger names, Sergio Garcia, Graham McDowell, Lee Westwood, uh, you know, these guys, I, I don't think they're going to challenge to necessarily win uh, a PGA Tour tournament, let alone the British Open. Um, and so I think from a handicapping standpoint, maybe that there's some of that that. You know, these guys are kind of on a retirement package now and, and they're going to collect a lot of money and, and throw that into their nest egg and, and right off into the sunset. And how concerned are they really with contending for a major championship? And Louis Oosthuizen is still, you know, I don't think he's quite done yet, but uh, I was willing to go against him in a matchup. The one guy that I think can still be great and probably still has enough potential to even ascend to number one in the world, possibly. I don't know if he will, but I think he's probably got that in him a little bit left of it anyway, is Dustin Johnson. And and I did bet on Dustin Johnson to win this week. I got him at 36 to one. He was even as high as 49 to one when he was kind of under the radar as far as you can be if you're DJ 
initially when it, you know, just maybe after the first live tour event or something, and he kind of became a little bit forgotten. He was as high as 49 to win, uh, 49 to one to win the open championship. And that's really a ridiculous number on a guy that still has that much talent. Uh, I've seen him as low as 25 to one. So I felt 36 was a pretty fair number. You know, this guy in 2015 led after 36 holes and was absolutely crushing the golf course. He, he would, he looked like he was on a mission and was going to run away with it. He went off in the final pairing on Saturday and the wind went nuts and he crashed all the way to 49th place. The wind was so crazy. They had to extend the tournament into a Monday finish. Uh, DJ checks the boxes on all the correlated courses. He's won the masters. He's won Riviera. He's won, um, at Kapalua. He's finished fifth and seventh at the PGA championships, uh, held at whistling straights. He's even played in the Alfred Dunhill Lynx championship, which is an annual European tour event. It's kind of like Pebble beach where they play three different courses and two of the four rounds are at St. Andrews. And DJ's played in that a couple of times and done pretty well, too. So he has a, a lot of experience on this golf course. And I think he could he's the one live player that I think could go well this week. As you mentioned, betting on Dustin Johnson to win outright. Also having mentioned a small flyer on Tiger to win outright. Presumably a few other outright tickets in pocket. I think it could be a useful exercise to explore that for a lot of novice or recreational bettors or just people who don't do a lot with golf betting specifically, it could seem curious betting in the outright market, several golfers where, you know, at best one of them will cash. There's no chance that more than one is going to come through for you. And I like to think of this exercise. Let's call it perhaps the pre-flop portfolio pie chart. I'm envisioning a pie chart with four slices. Let's call number one, the outright winner market. Slice number two, top 10s, top 20s. Slice number three, head-to-head -head matchups. And slice number four, perhaps just everything else, including props. With that kind of categorization, if that's a fair way to set up the framework, for your optimal portfolio for this open tournament, how big would you say each of those slices is in your pie chart? Well, the most amount of risk for me is always on the head-to-head matchups. And you talked about the hold in the outright market with Tiger Woods when we were discussing that. The lowest amount of hold or the best chance of probability that you have is in head-to-head -head matchups. That's, you know, basically a mano a mano. It's like betting the Patriots against the Steelers and a point spread is involved. Um, it's the same type of thing. Uh, I bet a head-to-head -head matchup on Rory McIlroy, minus 125 over Xander Schauffele. Um so, you know, I, I've got what I think is a decent edge there. Now, when, when you're picking outrights, I mean, you're trying to pick one guy out of 156. Now, maybe truly only 80 guys in this field can win. So let's say you're trying to pick one guy out of 80 or so. Um, but obviously, that's a needle in the haystack type bet. I equate it to a parlay. I mean, if, you, if you've got 100 to 1 on a guy, what is that at? 17 parlay or something like that. How often do you hit one of those? Not too often. So I think you have to make your smallest amount of risk in the outright market and your greatest amount of risk in the head to head matchup market. And then I also played all the guys that I played to win the tournament outright. I also played them for top 20s. And that amount of risk is, is somewhere in between my outright risk and my head to head head to head risk. 
Got it. And then with the name of this show being props and hops, anything in that small fourth <laughs> slice, perhaps any anything in props with this being a major, perhaps some expanded betting menus at certain books. You know, I, I bet Cameron Smith to miss the cut at the U.S. Open and that cashed at plus 220. But I don't often get involved in a lot of the prop bets. You know, they have like nationality markets, you know, the, the who's going to be the, the lowest Asian or the lowest former champion. And, you know, those are a lot of fun. Um, but I just haven't gotten into those too heavily. I think it's a little bit more difficult and more speculative handicap, if you will. Head-to-head matchups, you can look at player A's stats versus player B's stats and, and you know, just crunch the numbers and see if the price makes sense to you. Um, you know, that we've talked about correlated courses and metrics and horses for courses and all this stuff. You know, that kind of applies not only to the outright market, but also to the top 20 and also to the head-to-heads. When you get into some of these prop bets, um, I, I don't know if the handicap is so defined. I, I went against Cameron Smith, you know, betting him to miss the cut at the U.S. Open because his Achilles heel is off the tee. He's very wayward with the driver. Uh, and I didn't think that was going to work at the country club at Brookline. And sure enough, he did miss the cut. Um, now, he, he could be great shakes here this week. We talk about the connection with Augusta and St. Andrews. Cameron Smith has been tremendous at Augusta. And a wayward driver may not get him in too much trouble this week. And I know some very sharp people who have played Cameron Smith to win it this week. So uh, the prop markets for me is just not necessarily my cup of tea because I think the handicap is a little bit different. Fair enough. The prop market in this tournament might not be your cup of tea, but I think if we touch on the hop market a little bit later, (laughs) we might get a more favorable answer. One thing you touched on when talking about head-to-heads that raised an eyebrow for me as a casual observer, so I'd love you to let me know what I'm missing here, and some listeners might have gone through the same experience in real time. You mentioned, I believe, a head-to-head matchup, Rory McIlroy over Xander Schauffele at minus 125. And from my outsider perspective, the, about the only thing I knew about this tournament before we started talking was that Shoffley is in top-notch form. And recent form is often a big sticking point for handicapping. How does that weigh into your consciousness in that whole equation of ultimately still siding with Rory to perform better than him at St. Andrews? I thought the price was pretty inexpensive on Rory. Rory is the deserved favorite here. I, I think he probably is the guy to beat. And I don't know if he's going to win it, but I wouldn't. I, I would expect he's going to finish top five and almost certainly top ten. Like Tiger Woods, this too is his favorite course, and he hasn't been here since 2010. And he famously shot 63 and then 80 when the wind kicked up the next day. Uh, he missed 2015 because he suffered an ankle injury. Uh, just before the Open Championship, and he wasn't able to play. And I know that probably still sticks in his craw a little bit. Um, Rory's playing great golf. He just won the Canadian Open. I mean, he's been very good. You could argue he's in as good a form as Xander Shoffley. And Xander Shoffley has done so much winning in just the last two or three weeks. He won the Travelers Championship right after the U.S. Open. Uh, Earlier last week, he won the J.P. McManus Pro-Am, which was a little two-day you know, 50 player event that they held in Ireland right after the Irish Open. And and then he went on to win the Scottish Open. And I just wonder so much success in a short period of time. I would think he would come back to earth a little bit. And so I took Rory again, what I thought was a a pretty small price to to go against a guy that's been so high. And we'll see if we can find him hit a a low and not, not that he's going to crash, but Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he slipped into a top 20 rather than what he's been doing lately. 
yeah, it sounds that he wouldn't have to crash too hard to simply come in behind Rory McIlroy this weekend. And I like that answer because uh, while I wouldn't want to, with my level of golf knowledge, just step in front of a freight train potentially with Shoffley's recent form, I also think that if recent form gets put on too much of a pedestal, that can be perilous for betters. Because if recent form was always reliable and always held up, then Shoffley would never lose another tournament. And whoever's not doing well right now would never turn it around. And we know that there can be ebbs and flows. So a bit of an art to go with the science and all this. And Brady, before we wrap up everything, talking specific bets for the Open this weekend, um, I've jotted down as we've been talking. You've got a small flyer on Tiger to win it outright at 85 to 1. Dustin Johnson, I believe, 36 to 1. And you mentioned when you bet outrights, you'll also usually take some of those golfers to also finish inside the top 20. So perhaps tickets on Tiger and DJ in the top 20 as well. Additionally, Rory to finish ahead of Xander Shoffley in that head-to-head matchup at minus 125. Anything I'm missing when it comes to any best bets on the current board for you as we near tee off at the Open? Yeah, the other uh, long shot I took a small flyer on was Danny Willett at 200 to 1. And Danny Willett is a fairly pedestrian player when you look at what he's done week to week. But I feel he's kind of a big game hunter. You know, this guy, of course, has a Masters victory. I think it was 2016. Uh, He also, in 2015, finished sixth here at St. Andrews. He just finished 12th at Augusta this past April. And if you go back to last September, late September, he won the Alfred Dunhill Links Championship, which I talked about is a, a course that uses St. Andrews for two of its four rounds. He's also finished second and fifth at the Alfred Dunhill. So this guy definitely checks some boxes about having success, not only at St. Andrews, but at the correlated courses. Um, so 200 to one, again, just a very small flyer bet on Danny Willett. I mentioned the small play on Tiger. Um, I took Justin Rose at 85 to one, who has had a great season. Uh, he finished sixth at Torrey Pines, a course that he's also won at. He's had good finishes at Riviera. Uh, this guy's Justin Rose has done everything but win the Masters. He lost in a playoff to Sergio Garcia the year Garcia won it. Justin Rose also finished sixth at St. Andrews in 2015, and he's been playing very good golf. He just finished fourth at the Canadian Open when he almost shot 59 on Sunday. Uh, He just finished, I believe it was uh, 14th, no, 13th at the PGA Championship. So, and we talked about this, Matt, uh, at the beginning of the podcast, you know, sometimes it's older guys that flourish at, at the Open Championship, guys with experience. And Justin Rose is 41 years old. He's kind of right in that wheelhouse uh, for some of these guys that often win the Open Championship. I also took a guy that I think is right in that same space, and that's Adam Scott at 125 to 1. Adam Scott has had many near misses at the British Open. He has a Masters Championship. He's won at Riviera twice. He checks all those boxes. He's done well at the Alfred Dunhill. I think he has a ninth and a 12th place finish at the Alfred Dunhill. He's a great Lynx player. So, you know, what's interesting about Scotty, too. If you want to go a little bit of down narrative street here, his birthday is this Saturday. He'll turn 42. So, you know, he, he could be in contention on his birthday. Maybe that inspires him a little bit. Uh, let's see. I played Hideki Matsuyama at 47 to 1, another Masters champion. He doesn't have the greatest British Open record. But he did finish 18th here in 2015, and he's finished top five in two of his last five events, including a fourth place at the U.S. Open. 
And if you go back to all the major championships this year, the champion, the, the major winners this year, they all finished eighth or better in the major championship prior. So Hideki Matsuyama would check that box having finished fourth at the U.S. Open a month ago. Uh, I mentioned DJ at 36 to one. I played Shane Lowry at 25 to one, Justin Spieth at 25 to one. And then my shortest shot was Scotty Scheffler at plus 1450. And I've actually seen him as high as 18 or 20 to one. He drifted ever since he missed the cut last weekend at the Scottish Open. But I'm, I'm not putting much into that at all. He struck the ball very, very well. He finished eighth at his uh, Open Championship debut last year. Uh, this guy, obviously, another Masters winner for you, uh, who checks the boxes at the correlated courses. He finished second at the U.S. Open last month to Matthew Fitzpatrick. And, you know, he's number one in the world and Rory's number two, and they probably truly are the best two players in the world right now. And every time Scotty Scheffler tees it up, he seems to make some noise and be in contention, and I think he will again. As you rattle off all these names, I had the thought that a lot of betters who I consider to generally have extremely sharp approaches can be very wary of outright markets. Maybe this will circle back to something we covered earlier, uh, but I know that some people might roll their eyes at the notion of there being value on five to eight or perhaps even more golfers and the outright market, knowing that at best one of those tickets will cash. When you rattle off these names and the odds to win the tournament outright, are these also betters who you're taking top 20s head-to-head matchups with perhaps more exposure because you see more value there? Or how do you balance that dynamic of knowing that if you're betting on eight or 10 or more golfers to win this thing, best case scenario is one of them gets home? Well, like I said, the, the outright market is my lowest amount of risk. So, so these are not, you know, I, I haven't put out a lot of money, uh, you know, and, and cut into my possible winnings a whole lot. Um, yeah, obviously, hopefully one of the longer shots wins or, or what have you. But I, I pretty much just set a number that I want to win, a dollar amount that I want to win. And then I bet accordingly. So I've got more money risked on Scotty Scheffler than I do on Danny Willett. If you follow what I'm saying there, Danny Willett at 200 to one is a very small bet. Scotty Scheffler at plus 1450 is a larger bet. But again, my overall outlay in the in the outright market is not real extensive. So, you know, hopefully one of those guys comes through. But yes, kind of an insurance policy. I all bet them. I bet them all to finish top 20 as well for more risk uh, than the outright market. And, and then in the head to heads, we talked about Rory over Xander. Uh, I also took Shane Lowry at even money over Matthew Fitzpatrick, and I took Hideki Matsuyama plus 105 over Liu Ustazen. We talked about my handicap of Ustazen. My, my numbers are, are much better on Hideki. I think he's in better form right now. I think he's the better player right now, and, and maybe there's a little bit of a live hangover uh, for Liu Ustazen. Shane Lowry over Matthew Fitzpatrick – the numbers are pretty similar. Lowry, obviously a former open championship, uh, open champion who I also have an outright on tremendous short game, great, uh, in total driving as far as accuracy and length. Um, he's just a magician on a Lynx course, one of the best wind players in the world, but this is also kind of a fate of Matthew Fitzpatrick who just won his first major, the U S open. And not only did he just win his first major, he won it at the same course that he won the U.S. Amateur at. So, I mean, there's so much, you know, going for Matthew Fitzpatrick right now and so much jubilation. He, he rose so high on that pedestal. Uh, will he be ready to tackle another major championship this week after all that hoopla and media attention and what have you? 
Also, his highest finish in a British Open, I believe, is about 20th. So I, I think there's a couple things going against Fitzpatrick right now, and, and I have a lot of faith in Lowry. Well said. I've got to say, the encyclopedic knowledge you have of all these guys, seemingly at the drop of a hat, really <laughs> impressive here. I think we've done about Matt, all Matt, I'll interrupt you. You know, it's not encyclopedia knowledge. It's just that I've been talking about it for about four days straight. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, it, it's almost like the Open is going to be your final exam and you've been cramming like a college student. Maybe it won't be encyclopedic knowledge once this tournament has come and gone. But right now, it seems like that knowledge is peaking at the right time. Let's hope so, my friend. So I think we've done about all we can pre-flop for the Open, but I would like to mention one more dynamic people can keep in mind over the course of the weekend, getting into the notion of live wagering. When you were on the Gambling with an Edge podcast back in March, you mentioned that being, I believe, a growing part of your approach to betting on golf. And then early in this conversation, I believe you said you tend to do more of that in the final round on Sunday if you do it at all. Correct me if I'm wrong uh, with either of those two statements, but in general, how would you describe your current outlook on the live wagering landscape across golf? I've actually hit a couple in the last few weeks. I hit Xander Shoffley twice. I bet him before Sunday's final round started at the Travelers, and I bet him again before the final round started uh, this last week at the Scottish Open. Um, and I think that's probably your most opportune time and Xander, the Travelers, I believe he had a five-shot lead. And for the Scottish Open, he had a two-shot lead. So that that's a fairly substantial lead. Obviously, five, much different than two. Um, and, of course, the price was different. But um, I, I think the handicap becomes much easier when you're basically picking from maybe 10 guys. Maybe there's 12 or 15. But typically, there might be eight to 10 guys going into that final round on Sunday that have a chance. You're no longer looking at a field of 156. Uh, so I think that can be a very advantageous way to go. And then you want to look at the stats. Are, have they gotten to the top just because of a hot putter? That, that can be a red flag because oftentimes we talked about that early in the podcast. Putting is very volatile. It can go uh, one, way or the other, one way or the other at a moment's notice. Um, so, you know, I, I remember Keegan Bradley, uh, at the uh, Wells Fargo at TPC Potomac earlier this year when Max Homa won. Keegan Bradley is not a good putter typically, hasn't been throughout his career. He was leading the field in strokes gained putting like over five strokes gained with the putter or something through the first three rounds. And I was like, this has got to come crashing down. He's not a very good putter. And sure enough, it did. So I think you want to look at how well these guys are putting going into that final round. And of course, look at all the other stuff. What, what else are they doing well? Are they accurate off the tee? Are they hitting greens in regulation? Are they gaining strokes on approach? And you kind of put your little mini handicap together from there, if you will. As you mentioned, Keegan Bradley, I think of an NFL parallel going back a couple years, the 2020 season, it seemed like the Dallas Cowboys could not hold on to the ball to save their lives. And then once the ball touched the ground, they couldn't recover a fumble to save their lives. So maybe putting and golf can be similar to fumble luck in the NFL, where it can make a very big impact as to whether somebody's going to win a game in the NFL or a tournament in golf. But by no means is it the most predictive metric out there. So when it gets off the charts for better or worse, probably a good idea to look towards some regression. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a good parallel and, and we see regression. You know, we see everything coming back to the mean, if you will, in, in all areas of sports betting. Right. So, yeah, if some guys through the roof in, in, in 
especially putting because it is very volatile, then yeah, it's likely to come back. Now, that being said, I, I think, you know, the other metrics I'm talking about strokes gained approach and driving distance, th- those are more regular. That that's, that's who a player is and he's more likely to sustain something like that happening uh, over the course of four days. But, but you're right. Putting, could be like fumble luck, turnovers, what have you, uh, that uh, once it goes one way too far, it's probably going to come back the other. And one point to wrap up this topic, I believe I referred to it as live wagering when I threw it over to you. It sounds like it's more the approach of betting in between rounds as odds are posted. I would think it's got to be awfully hard to truly bet live in golf if we're talking about a player to hit a fairway or hit a green on a certain stroke because the immediacy of it all is so important and we're often watching with a bit of a lag. So true live betting might be more challenging in golf. Do I have that correct? Is there actually is. any live betting you'll do as well? There are live bet. You know, I know William Hill or Caesars here in town uh, has a tremendous live betting opportunity where, you know, through commercials and, you know, while the game is going on, the, the odds are changing and, and you can, you can get down right there in the middle of the action. Um, of course, it can be tough because, like you say, there's a delay. Maybe you only do it at a commercial or something like that. And, you know, as far as a fairway hit or a green hit, I mean, that that's so immediate. I, I'm sure that's coming, Matt. I, I, and it's probably already out there somewhere. Um, but I think golf is headed that direction. Uh, but as far as the true live wagering while the event is taking place, um, it's few and far between in my experience where you can actually find that. Yeah, fair enough. Understandable why that's the case. And just a little PSA to everybody, and I guess I'll plug The Logic of Sports Betting, one of my favorite books I've read in recent years. When they talk about live betting, often if books are offering it and taking serious bets, they've got a more instantaneous speed than you do. Um, so just be careful. If you're if you're going to bet in running, try to make it during a commercial break when you're not at risk of having a bet rejected because if it goes your way, they're not going to take your money. And if you have your bet accepted, then it probably means when you catch up in a few seconds, the book will have just taken your money and and you'll have lost your bet. So something to be mindful of there. Brady, there's a few other things I want to get to. So I'll, I'll cut myself off there as golf is concerned, except for one more notion related to golf. You do a lot of great work outside of the handicapping realm with helping people get on the course kind of whenever and wherever they want to. Tell us a little bit about Tea Times USA. Yeah, that's a company. Well, first, I started in the tea time business uh, in year 2000, so uh, 22 years ago, and I owned my own company uh, for 13 years. And then uh, about eight years ago or so, um, I sold my company to Tea Times USA, which is a national tea time provider, and they retained me to continue to run the Las Vegas market for them. Uh, so essentially, I'm doing the same thing that I've always done, assisting travelers to Las Vegas uh, in getting them golf reservations. And you know how it is when you go on vacation, Matt, you know, maybe if, if you're an avid golfer, maybe you know exactly where you want to play, or if you're a very casual golfer, you have no idea. And, you know, I kind of deal with both people. They, they arrive here in town or they get a hold of me a week before or two weeks before, and they say, Hey, we want to play some golf. What do I do? And I, I kind of try and screen them. Like what type of experience are you looking for? Are you looking for the nicest golf course in town or are you looking for something that's more budget oriented or, or, or what did you have in mind? And, and we just kind of go from there. And I use, you know, 25 plus years of experience in the golf business to hopefully guide them in the right direction. And, you know, we've been good at it for a long time. So, it, you know, I always say all we do is help. We, we don't charge a fee. Uh, it's a free service. 
um, you know, if it costs a hundred dollars to golf at the, at this particular course, that's exactly what we charge. Uh, and, and again, I, I just try and help and, and make it a good experience, optimize your experience, having not known otherwise. For all your golf expertise, Brady, whether it's helping people make better bets, helping people have a better experience on the course for themselves, I feel like it'd be remiss not to delve into the NFL a little bit while I've got you. We touched on it earlier. 2011 Super Contest champion, part of that legendary team. In the decade plus since that Super Contest championship, I'm curious how you would say your approach to betting on the NFL has evolved over that time. Well, one of our mutual friends, Las Vegas Chris, I've learned a lot from him in the past couple of years, who's obviously a tremendous contest player. Back in 2011, when we won the contest, there were 517 entries in the Westgate Super Contest. At that time, it was the very last year that it was still the Las Vegas Hilton Super Contest. There was 517 entries. So you know, the, and, and that was 11 years ago in, in my handicapping career. And, you know, Matt, I mean, every year, every day, every week that goes by, we learn more. Uh, so I'm more educated now than I was. But back then it was like, all right, let's pick some winners and and go win it. You know, and, and now, like I say, Las Vegas, Chris has taught me a lot. There's there's game theory and there's contest theory. And and I'm not competing against 500 some people anymore. We're competing against two, four, six thousand people. So. So strategies change that way. And, and I, I always say there's three type, you know, now in a modern day contest, when you do have thousands of people competing, there's three types of winners. There's, there's a winner that everybody's on. There's a winner that nobody's on. And there's a winner that everybody's on the opposite side of. So, you know, each one of those has a different value in contest play. Obviously the best one is when you have the winner that everybody's on the opposite side of, but uh that's certainly part of it right there, you know, employing more contest game theory, whatever you want to call it, uh, into the strategy rather than just trying to pick winners. And you talk about the notion that we're learning seemingly every single day as we go through this together. Is there anything contest related or otherwise from a betting standpoint that would stand out if I were to ask you about any angles that are top of mind for you as the 2022 season approaches? In football? Mm-hmm. You know, one that I really like, and I, I think as handicappers, we always preface this statement by saying I'm not into trends. <laughs> um, I, I think trends can be useful if you read between the lines and figure out what they're telling you. If it's completely random, then, yeah, you throw it out. But I think there are some trends that make sense if you kind of decipher, you know, eight out of the last 10 times. Why is this happening? One that I think is valuable and makes sense is when you have a home underdog that wins outright, and then the following week they go on the road and are in the role as a road favorite. That is a very good spot to go against that team as a road favorite. And I think the, the reasoning behind it is fairly simple, that their value has become a little bit inflated in the line. And, you know, maybe they were catching three and a half or six and a half or whatever, and they won at home. And then the next week they're laying four and a half. It's like, whoa, slow down. Uh, that is a, a very profitable angle to go against that team in that role as a road favorite. That's one I look for all the time. Yeah, not, not quite the same dynamic. I'm trying to get my numbers in order here. I think back to last season in the NFL, I remember the 49ers hosted the Packers early on. Uh, I am... Not seeing it immediately, so I'll, I'll just guess. But I believe the Niners were laying three points at home to Green Bay early right. in the season. 
and the Packers won that game in overtime. It was a really good Sunday night football game early in the 2021 season. And it wasn't the next week, but near the end of the season in the NFC divisional round, San Francisco goes into Green Bay. So it's basically a rematch. Theoretically, all that has flipped is the home field advantage. And the Niners went from a pretty clear favorite to an underdog. I believe it at some point the line was as high as Packers minus six. Now, over the course of a season, certain things can change. But having those, you know, reference points from earlier in the season to the very end of the season, you know, having those as anchors, not to take as gospel, but just to see, wait a minute, home field advantage is not worth as much as it used to be. This is a nine point swing. Yes, let's say we upgrade Green Bay quite a bit from what we expected early in the season, even downgrade the Niners. That's just a really big gap to wrap your head around. That was one of the reasons that probably the playoff point spread I had the most conviction on was the Niners against the spread in Green Bay. And it came through for very fortunate reasons. I don't want to try to claim to be a genius when the Niners block a punt and and really don't do much of anything offensively except for drop every pass from Jimmy G early in the game and still come out victorious. Um, But sometimes as, as you outlined that trend, I think just, you know, what we see one week is very rarely in the NFL, any sort of guarantee as to what we can bank on seeing from the same teams moving forward. Yeah, and I think kind of along the lines of the point you're making, I like to grab a copy of what the very first opening lines are that they come out with over the summer. And you get about two or three weeks, four or five weeks into the season, and you reference that and say, okay, in this game, the 49ers, you know, back in the summer, were made a three-point favorite, and now they're a four-point dog. What has changed? Should it be that big of an adjustment? So I I think, you know, kind of to your point, that's something you can look at as well. A lot of times those lines that are made originally over the summer, uh, as you know, are pretty sharp. And maybe there should not be as big as adjustment as there is in, say, week seven, eight or what have you. Yeah, one topic I want to run by you while we're still talking NFL would be some recent love I'm seeing from a lot of people, some of whom I highly respect when it comes to backing the Jacksonville Jaguars. Stop me if you've been there before. I was on the train last year with the Jags AFC South ticket in hand. Knew by about week two or three that that belonged in the garbage. (laughs) But lately, seen a lot of steam on the Jags. Regular season wins over six and now over six and a half for some plus money. Yes, to make the playoffs. And a lot of value in their regular season win number or their playoff yes, no prop is probably gone because of a lot of that influential money hitting the marketplace. A next look for a lot of betters who feel like, okay, they missed the value there, but they do want to get, you know, some exposure on the Jags. Maybe look at them to win the division at seven to one. I would say as a counter to that notion, perhaps a look at Doug Peterson to win coach of the year. 18 to one is pretty well available at regulated U.S. books. We know what he did with Carson Wentz and Nick Foles in Philadelphia, getting an MVP caliber season out of Wentz before a season ending injury then going on that magical playoff run capped off with a Super Bowl victory with Nick Foles of all quarterbacks under center. And I've got to think, if the Jags do win the division this season, Coach of the Year is well within Peterson's grasp, given the current expectation of the Jacksonville Jaguars. And Coach of the Year would pay out more than two and a half times as much as that division championship would if we're looking at 18-1 to versus 7-1. to And in fact, offshore, always recommend shopping for markets like this where it's harder for books just to copy one another. The Don Best Green doesn't give books as much easy access to just paint the same numbers across the board. I'm seeing several 20 to ones out there as high as 22 to one. So really at 18 to one or better, 
I, I'd be curious for any thoughts you might have based on that breakdown on Doug Peterson in the coach of the year market. I think it's a great call, you know, and there's so many situations where you can kind of get creative and, and find something like that. I, I recall a friend of mine uh, when the Miami Heat were playing the Los Angeles Lakers in the NBA finals, he had an 80 to one ticket on the heat to win the NBA championship. And he was trying to figure out how to best hedge it. And rather than just taking the Warriors to win or the Warriors, the, uh, the Lakers to win the championship, he played LeBron James to win MVP and was able to get a decent plus money price. So uh, again, along the same lines that you're doing there, finding a creative way to back the Jaguars. And I, and I think that's pretty astute. I wouldn't play him to win the division. I don't know if I want to go there yet. Um, I might still play him at over six and a half wins, but, but yeah, you're, you're getting a lot of bang for your buck with Peterson for the coach of the year. And, and you're right. If he wins seven or eight or even nine games, absolutely. He's a big time candidate. Yeah. That's, that's one other thought I had. It's unlikely that if the Jags fail to win the division, that Peterson will get coach of the year, but if they go nine and eight, make the playoffs, that's a huge improvement from the year before it is still possible that they could fail to win the division and Peterson still have a crack at this award, plus the bigger payout. I'm going to make a parallel to that Tiger Woods 85 to 1 bet you've got. I don't <laughs> expect this to win. So again, to everybody, please manage your money accordingly. Not worth a big bet. But if you've got some FOMO, if you didn't get a good number on the Jags to go over their regular season win total or to make the playoffs, perhaps Doug Peterson, coach of the year at 18 to 1 or better, worth a bit of a flyer as a next best option. Yep, I hear you loud and clear. Awesome. Well, Brady, there are two final pillars to the show that we can get into as we start to hit the home stretch. Number one, the Malinsky Minute in honor of the late, great David Malinsky. And I'd like to do a two-parter here because I understand that you knew Dave, so we can cover some nice ground in this segment. And first off, I also want to note, in the spirit of honoring the legacies of legends in our betting community, Alan Dink Dinkinson is currently in hospice. He's going through quite the health battle. I never met Dink. I have some friends who I've seen are deeply affected, and that says a lot to me about the impact that he has had across this space. Want to send Dink my best wishes, thoughts certainly with his family and friends as well. Brady, did you ever meet Dink by any chance? Do you have any relationship with him? I don't, unfortunately, and I certainly send my well wishes as well. I have been following um, you know, the goings on via his Twitter feed and, uh, I wish him the best and, and a recovery. It, it doesn't look great right now, but, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of people around VEASAN do know him personally. And, uh, believe me, he has a lot of followers in his camp, if you will, that are rooting for him. So, uh, I hope he makes it certainly, uh, David Malinsky, uh, I, I did, I actually never met Dave in person, which is kind of odd, but uh, we certainly shared a lot of text messages and a lot of conversation on Twitter. And I actually shared a space with him uh, for SBR, Sportsbook Review. We, we both wrote a column uh, for that website uh, for at least a couple, three years. And and I interviewed him a couple of times on VEASAN. So, so we definitely had a a cyber friendship, if you will. Um, and, and I ended up attending his memorial up at Mount Charleston. But uh, Dave was just a, a super person. He was a terrific writer and absolutely one of the sharper handicappers I ever came across. And one thing that I really loved about Dave, whether I was reading his work or interviewing him on VEASAN or, or reading you know, his articles in SBR, he always seemed to come up with a nugget that I hadn't 
uh, heard of or hadn't thought of and, and hadn't heard anybody else uh, lean on as they were, you know, kind of going through an analysis of a certain game or what have you. And he just always seemed to come up with some stuff that I was like, boy, that that is a really brilliant thought uh, as it applies to this particular game. And, and, and he seemed to come up with that stuff on a regular basis. Well said. And what blew me away was that he could come up with those thoughts on such a regular basis, as you point out, while also still seemingly knowing everything, not just about sports betting, but anything in the Vegas food scene or any local beer or wine or spirits or music or anything in nature. I feel like if there was one time in my life that I could have been two places at once, it would probably be back in May of 2018. There was a memorial service for Dave on Mount Charleston. And I had a prior commitment that I had to honor. So I unfortunately couldn't be at Dave's service. But I understand that you were there. And I'd be curious to hear about your top takeaways from being at that service. Yeah, you know, uh, the, the guy meant so much to me. Again, never having met face-to-face in person, just doing basically everything but radio interviews and, and texting and all that other stuff. Um, I actually got up and, and said a few words at his memorial Um and a lot of what I said to you and a lot of what you've said, he had a great sense of humor. Um, you know, he passed away up at Mount Charleston hiking. He had a wonderful adoration for nature and, you know, just a, a Renaissance man. And I, I'm, you know, disappointed that I never actually got to shake hands with him, but lucky that uh, I did get to share a few conversations with him, certainly. Yeah, I guess there's always disappointment at some level when something like that happens so suddenly. I mean, I was fortunate to get to do a podcast with him during the 2017 NFL season and and really get to know him into the spring of 2018. And as I think back, all the three, four-hour lunches we had, the (laughs) two-hour phone calls where I, I felt like I was hoarding this guy's time and it was so valuable. He had so many other more important things to do, and yet he was never hurried. Um, Somehow as close as I got with him, we never got a picture together. And that's probably one of my bigger regrets is not having that to look back on, but still such a great legacy that continues to endure. So I'm going to definitely cling to that. And something you had in common with Dave, aside from everything in the sports handicapping space, um, I guess also tangentially related to that space would be doing some work with Billy Walters. I know that you noted on your gambling with an edge appearance in March that I referenced earlier, having worked with Billy, and I believe you quoted him as having told you once that you could have learned from him as a businessman and he could have learned from you as a people person. And I like the way that you framed that. And, and if that's exactly how he said it, I think that's perhaps quite well put. I'm curious to know, Brady, what did you learn from your time working with Billy? And what do you like to think that he ultimately learned from you in exchange? Well, you know, I, I don't know if he did end up learning from me. Maybe he did, but he, he did say that to me. Um, you know, he was kind of consoling me and coaching me and said, Brady, you know, and it was something along the lines, if I had half your people skills and you had half my business skills, you know, uh, we could both be much better at our jobs. And, and, and I felt that that was very complimentary. And to answer your question, what I learned from him was business acumen, toughness, being a shrewd negotiator, uh, certainly I'm not nearly as good as <laughs> I may never be as good as him in that regard, but, but he taught me about that side of, of being in any business really. And, and certainly my strengths and, you know, and making tea times for people and working in the golf business, that's a very people oriented, uh, industry. And, and so that is certainly playing to my strengths, but, but Billy introduced me to, and, and I ran my own business, 
uh, the tea time service that I mentioned earlier in the pod. I ran my own business for 13 years and I, and I would look back sometimes on, on my experience with Bill and, and, you know, I mean, he wasn't always the nicest guy in the world, but, uh, you know, he had a purpose. He had a seriousness of purpose. Um, he was extremely driven. And, and like I say, he was shrewd. So, so I certainly learned that part of that part of the business side from Billy. And, and, you know, I cherish my time with him. And like I say, he, he could be a volatile personality as well. Um, but boy, some of the experiences that I had with him and I, I worked side by side with his son, um, I, I, we stored all of our golf clubs. We were getting ready to open Desert Pines Golf Club and we stored all of our supplies and rental clubs and merchandise and whatnot in, in the old computer group building. So I, I got to see a lot of the, the sports betting side of Billy as well. You know, he'd be on a couple of different phones and, and talking about, you know, bet this and get that. And um, it, it, it was an awesome run. And, and uh, I, I was glad to have experienced it. We, we were not only colleagues for about a year in working with Desert Pines, but we became competitors as well. When I got into the tea time business, you know, he, he was working with everybody in Las Vegas to try and get people to send them to his golf courses. And I was, you know, working out there, pounding the pavement, trying to get people to, to come to my golf service. So, so we worked in a lot of different ways together. And again, I'm very thankful. One of the common threads of that response, the people skills involved. And as we hit the home stretch, another industry centered around people skills, knowing that when we're talking anything about the hops, or if it's, you know, beyond beer, wine, spirits, anything like that can really be quite the social lubricant. I like to ask a lot of guests what they might describe as their beer or drink of choice. But if I can get a little more specific than that, understanding your background, Brady, what would you say is your go-to drink over the course of a round of golf? Well, usually when I start my round of golf, the cart girl comes around on the first or second hole or whatever. And I will ask for three Budweiser's. Yes, I know that's not very sexy and not Bud Light. I, I, I'm not a real huge fan <laughs> of Bud Light. Budweiser, the leaded version. Um, I, I've enjoyed, you know, as far as a domestic beer, Budweiser has been a favorite of mine for a long, long time. And that three beers usually is good for about a full round of golf. So that, that's usually my go-to drink uh, when I get on the golf course. Now, Matt, you and I could probably get along really well because I've tried so many different beers all over the world. Um, I've enjoyed IPAs, uh, lagers, pilsners. Um, I'm not so much into some of the heavier stuff, the double IPAs and, and you know, the, but uh, I, I, I really enjoy Guinness and a half and half. And so, yeah, I, I really, you know, when I travel to different spots of the world, I love trying some of the local beers that are produced locally. And I always kind of make a point to try and do that. So no, I enjoy it quite a bit, but just as far as the golf course, I keep it simple with a good old red, white, and blue Budweiser. No shame whatsoever, and Budweiser also caught you dropping Guinness there. I think that you know any beer can hit the spot in a certain time and place. I consistently maintain there is a time and place for every beer. I think that's perfectly acceptable. Beyond the Buds and Guinnesses of the world, when you mentioned traveling and trying local beer when you get the chance, does anything stand out that might be just, you know, a craft beer from a prior vacation that really sticks out in your memory? Yeah, I'll mention a, a couple. Um, I go to Telluride, Colorado every year, and you may know our, our mutual friend, Patrick Everson, uh, who used to work for Covers, and uh, he was just with another company. Uh, I, Prop I Stop. Prop, Prop Stop, yes. Um, 
But uh, Patrick's nephew owns the Telluride Brewing Company, and I've become a big fan of their product. I grab that every time there. I travel to Colorado, and, and he's been very successful. Um, I've tried some really good beers in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. I think it's called a Low Country Lager. Uh, my son is getting ready to graduate from the University of Florida, so I've been to the Gainesville area and tried a bunch of stuff in that area. But uh, yeah, everywhere I go, I, I, I try uh, like to try a few. But uh, the one I can remember the specific name off the top of my head because I've been there so many times is the Telluride Brewing Company. Again, uh, the owner related to Patrick Everson. I had a conversation about that with Patrick during Bet Bash, so that is near the top of my list <laughs> next time I can get out to Colorado. One more beer question for you, Brady, because I feel like if I don't ask this, then some people will not be able to give me any credibility as somebody who might know a thing about beer. When you mention getting three Budweiser's just right at the start of a round of golf, I'd imagine those can warm up quite a bit. I mean, especially in Vegas, by the time you're making the turn, those cans or bottles could be cooking do you take a cooler with you or how do you navigate keeping those three cans each as refreshing as can be over the course of 18 holes? Well, most of the golf courses here in town, because of the heat, I, I'm not sure if there's a golf course that doesn't have a cooler on the golf cart. It, it comes with it. And, and most importantly, they throw a few waters in there as well, uh, which is especially crucial during the summer months. So, so yeah, you've got a nice down cooler right there on the cart. Three beers over 18 holes, one every six holes works out pretty well. There we go. All right. Well, I knew enough about beer to think that they need to stay cold some way over the course of those 18 holes. <laughs> Clearly haven't been on a golf course for a while if I didn't realize that pretty much any cart you see in that area is going to have a cooler in the cart. No problem. Well, Brady, as we start to round the final corner here, I want to be sure to plug your work so people know where they can follow you if they're not doing so already. A VEASAN host, co-host of the Long Shots podcast on Twitter at Las Vegas Golfer, TeaTimesUSA.com. Anything I'm missing or anything else you'd like to add? No, I think that's about it. Uh, TeaTimesUSA.com if you're looking to play golf in Las Vegas. And, of course, if you're looking for golf betting information, you can find me at VEASAN and at Las Vegas Golfer, as you mentioned. Uh, the Long Shots podcast comes out every Tuesday evening, usually about 5 or 6 p.m. Pacific time. And you can get that at VEASAN.com slash podcast or wherever you get your podcast coming out right about now as we wrap this up so i've got to get on the go so i can catch that full conversation <laughs> after this interview as a proper follow-up final way to wrap things up I want to thank everybody for listening to this conversation if you've enjoyed it the number one way you can support props and hops is to take just a few seconds and leave a five-star rating on apple podcasts or spotify brady once again thank you for the time and insight and i hope we have a chance to meet up in person in vegas sooner rather than later Matt, it was a pleasure, and it's also a real honor to have you invite me on your show. I know you have some pretty big-name people here, and uh, I, I don't feel like I'm necessarily a big-name guy, so it's, uh, it, it really means something to be a guest on your show. Oh, thank you. I, I would beg to differ, and I think plenty of people listening to this would beg to differ as well, but appreciate the humility on top of everything else. It's been a joy, and hope to do it again at some point before too long. All right, my friend. Yeah, look forward to meeting you in person and sharing a beer. I'm saying I'm saying I'm saying I'm